This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. ISR truly is a, a team sport. I think, you know, there are new domains, Bev, that we have to keep our eyes on, you know, certainly the cyber domain, the space domains, where it's important for us to have capabilities to provide warning for commanders. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. As the U.S. marks the 20th anniversary of 9-11, the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is turning a spotlight on women in the military and featuring conversations about leadership, air, space, and cyber issues. This episode focuses on the push to modernize intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, better known as ISR. I spoke with Lieutenant General Mary O'Brien, the Air Force Deputy Chief of Staff for Intelligence, Surveillance, Reconnaissance, and Cyber Effects Operations, and retired Marine Lieutenant General Lori Reynolds, the former Deputy Commandant for Information and former Commander, U.S. Marine Corps Forces Strategic Command. This podcast was recorded before the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. Lieutenant General O'Brien and Lieutenant General Reynolds, thank you so much for joining me here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thanks so much, Bev. Great to be with you. Really appreciate the invitation. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Well, I am super excited to have both of you here. And I know, General Reynolds, this is a return appearance for you. You were the very last podcast we did in person before the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. So it's a treat to have you back here now. The first question that I have here is about the Pentagon prioritizing ISR as part of its modernization efforts. Has it not been prioritized previously, what are some of the challenges that the U.S. faces in modernizing ISR, which I should say stands for Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance? General Reynolds, you want to start? Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Bev. I guess the first challenge writ large, I, I think, would just be, you know, finding place in the budget, you know, to make sure that you're keeping your ISR modernized. I think the other parts of modernizing ISR obviously are, you know, continuing to make sure that we have the right ally and partner comms, communications current so that we can share because this ISR truly is a a team sport. I think, you know, there are new domains, Bev, that we have to keep our eyes on, you know, certainly the cyber domain, the space domains where it's important for us to have capabilities to provide warning for commanders. I think also really just, you know, the nature of the competition is going to change the way you think about providing intelligence support. You know, so so we've become really good at the uh, find, fix, finish, that regional approach to warfighting. But now that you have a great power competition and the mandate to provide understanding to commanders globally, that really does you know, change the way you think about providing a capability for intelligence and surveillance and reconnaissance. And so I'll stop there, but it's, it's, uh, I really look forward to a great conversation. I agree with General Reynolds. I would say absolutely. She hit the nail on the head when we talk about the strategic environment is changing and we're adapting. There's a lot of things going on right now. We are exceptionally well postured 
for our operations in Iraq and Afghanistan over the past you know, two decades, and now we're adapting. We started that conversation with the 2018 National Defense Strategy, and I would say that conversation is definitely accelerating with the interim national security strategy. So as we look to the type of ISR force that we need for the future for the joint force, we're talking about ISR capabilities that are survivable, that are persistent, and they've got to be connected in order to challenge those future threats. We haven't had to have all of those attributes in the platforms that we've been using in the conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, so definitely the environment is changing and we absolutely have to modernize if we're going to be prepared for the future. A couple of threads, if I could follow up on there. General Reynolds, you mentioned the great power competition and the capabilities. It seems as if our competitors and our adversaries are operating in areas that perhaps are outside of their spheres of influence. Is that a part of the issue in terms of this big push for modernizing by the U.S. right now? I think absolutely all of that really matters and certainly changes you know, how the joint force works together and operates. And, you know, Bev, if you think of, you know, some of the work that's being done by the joint staff and the combatant commanders on the joint warfighting concepts and joint concept for information advantage, the joint all-domain command and control concept, which work together, right, the information advantage and the, the JADC2, which is to say, how do you think about you know, really understanding globally what's happening. Certainly, you know, AFRICOM is seeing impacts of Chinese influence, right? And so how do you, you know, share those understandings and put the pieces together to really begin to understand exactly, you know, what's happening globally? So, you know, I always kind of use an approach of, you know, people process technology as I try to unpack you know, the work that has to be done for all the services, but, but the processes for the information community as we think about sharing information and sharing understanding, sharing analysis is just, I think, part of the work that has to be done, given what our adversaries are thinking about doing. And speaking specifically of our adversaries, how do their ISR efforts compare with ours. I'm thinking specifically of Russia and China, but there are other adversaries as well. Uh, General O'Brien, you want to take a stab at that? Our competitors, you know, Russia and China, they view us as a global competitor uh, and they've been watching us. We've been engaged. We've been trying out our new capabilities. We've been developing new TTPs and they've been able to watch us at the same time to a level that we haven't been able to do the same. I think we've been able to do some of that with watching some of Russia's operations in Syria, but not as much on with China. And so they've been watching us and they are attempting to match or if possible, surpass our ISR capabilities. That's absolutely their goal. And as we look at the global great power competition, I would say one area that is a strategic advantage for us, again, is back to our partners and allies. We have many allies and partners in the Indo-PACOM region, you know, as well as particularly our NATO partners in the UCOM AOR, that allows us to not only have to rely on our own ISR capabilities, 
but to be able to develop different types of intel sharing arrangements with our partners and allies. With China and Russia, what they're doing sometimes is leveraging economic power or other types of coercive actions you know, to try and gain access in some of these regions that General Reynolds was talking about. And so I think for now, our advantage remains with us. But of course, that won't stay that way forever if we don't advance some of our modernization efforts. And let me ask about the individual services. We're pleased to have the Air Force and the Marines represented in this conversation. So are some services better positioned to push forward with modernization than others? I know that General O'Brien, you can talk about the Air Force and General Reynolds, you just retired from the Marines, so you can talk about them. So General O'Brien, I'll start with you and the Air Force. The first thing I'd say about the different services is we're not competing with each other, right? We're competing with our adversaries. And I think we've been so fortunate to have the group of individuals we've had leading the services where we've grown up together, we fought together in Afghanistan, and I think there's a real commitment under the new USDINS, Mr. Honorable Ron Moultrie, to work together and to include the partnership with Director Haynes at DNI. And, and so I'll just footstomp that, right? We're not competing against each other. We need to work together. A, a great example of that, when I first got into the A26 job, and Lieutenant General Jer- Scotty Barrier was the Army G2, prior to him going over to become the director of DIA, we had kind of a mini reunion from our time in Afghanistan. And so I went down to his office and uh, like a good army officer, he had a big giant map on his conference table. And he said, sis, I can't see the deep battlefield. I've got some ISR gaps and pointed at a surface to air missile site. And I said, Scotty, who else do you think is interested in what you're calling the deep battlefield? And so I said, we should work together because perhaps the Air Force will develop capabilities where the, you know, colloquially the lightning bolts, the lightning bolts go down to share the information that we're getting from our assets. And I said, but we have gaps where the land component is postured. And so perhaps the lightning bolts from your capabilities can go up. I think we're all committed to that. With his replacement, Lieutenant General Laura Potter, and so even though the Army's not here to defend themselves, I would say that we're committed not to compete and be better postured, but to recognize each other's strengths and help mitigate where we have gaps and work together to address those. Yeah, I'm not sure I could have answered that question any better than how General O'Brien really just answered it. I think the only thing that I would add is, you know, from a Navy Marine Corps perspective, our very operating concepts are naval. And so just as, you know, I think each of the services are thinking about how how are we best positioning ourselves to contribute to the joint force. And certainly, you know, to General O'Brien's point, I mean, those personal relationships now they told us all along that they would matter, and they certainly do. And it's just doggone A team right now of uh, professionals trying to make all this work together. And if I could shift gears and ask a slightly different question of General O'Brien, I want to ask about Congress's interest in ISR modernization and specifically in the Air Force's plans to 
potentially divest some legacy platforms. There was a, an article recently in Brace, Breaking Defense that said that some lawmakers have expressed some concerns about retiring current ISR drones and manned aircraft, and they question whether that will compromise the ability of field commanders to accomplish their missions. Is that actually something to be worried about? I saw that article as well, and and I can understand how our overseers on the Hill are concerned. They've got to balance a lot of different aspects of our nation's defense. That particular article highlighted near-term readiness challenges, and we will. We will be ready to fight tonight. That is without question. But We've got to get ready to fight into tomorrow's conflicts and into the future that we anticipate is going to look very different than the type of fight that we're going to engage in now. And to compete in that fight, the U.S. is going to require a new framework for assessing readiness in order to balance today's needs with tomorrow. And so my boss, the chief of staff of the Air Force, General Brown, and Lori's old boss, uh, Lieutenant General Berger, they collaborated on an op-ed that was in the Washington Post in the, I think, February timeframe, February, March. And in that op-ed, they said, hey, here's an alternative to use as a readiness framework. And it's got to incorporate availability, the actual availability, which sometimes I think is we use as a replacement for readiness as we talk about it today. It's got to incorporate modernization and it's got to incorporate risk. All three of those elements are really critical to better balance today's needs with what we need for tomorrow. And so our window of opportunity to prepare for that readiness framework that addresses all three of those, that window is finite and some would say it's closing. Both of our service chiefs see the need, the the very real need to take action to address these concerns today. The bottom line, I think, of you know what the service chiefs have offered is that a a ready legacy force is not really ready. Right? And so if the game changed, then we need to change as well. And I think there's just a growing understanding of that. And I think that's the what you see the services trying to really work hard at to figure out what is the real requirement of the joint force given new competitors and new operational environments and new domains. What about the use of open source? I've read that that's something that is increasingly being used in ISR. Is that the case? all of the data, wherever the data comes from, and more and more that data is publicly available and helps augment or perhaps cues some of our more exquisite ISR sources. It's definitely a priority area for Director Haynes to start developing it with some of the same tools and techniques and tradecraft that we now take for granted with our more traditional ints. Yeah, Mary's spot on. You know, one of the things that we know that our competitors will not do is constrain themselves to old ways of thinking. Or one of the things I used to say in my last position as the Deputy Commandant for Information, trying to build a true information warfighting capability for the Marine Corps in support of the Commandant's force design effort, which is, you know, the modernization of the Marine Corps for great power competition 
is that you really just have to challenge, you know, old think, you know, the adversary will not constrain himself to lines on a map the way that we think about, you know, uh, regional war fighting or, you know, and certainly in the information environment, you know, whether it's economic information, whether it's medical information, whether it's, you know, to Mary's point, data is data is data. And it's this fight for the data, fight for the information, fight for understanding in every domain that, you know, I think is essential for us moving forward. And talking about the fight for data and the fight for information, that brings us to cyber. How are the Air Force and the Marines adjusting as the battlefield shifts more to information and cyber and in those domains? It seems as if part of modernization is coming to terms that there are going to be more and more fights in those areas rather than on a physical battlefield. General Reynolds? You know, cyber is is one of those domains that, yes, it happens to be a warfighting domain, but again, I mean, everybody's in it. It's not a domain that is reserved for warfighters alone, and we all need to understand that. And so, you know, Mary and I served together in the early days of uh, U.S. Cyber Command standing up. She was the J-2, and uh, I, I was Marine Forces Cyber. I just think to where they are now from back then, which was 2015, 2016, so encouraging what's happening in cyber. I think we're providing more decision space for our national leadership. I think there's a growing awareness for all commanders that you got to play hard defense in the cyber domain, but it is also an opportunity for greater integration in the traditional warfighting domains, or it can be used on its own. It's uh, certainly an essential part of our future warfighting capability. And there's there's so much that you could say about uh, the cyber domain and then everything that, that we've learned in the fight against ISIS and other actors like that. I think we can now apply those in other contests globally. And I think there's a ton more to be learned in cyber. And over to you, Mary, for your thoughts. I agree completely. The cyber domain and our knowledge of how to deliver effects in it is evolving. Initially, I think we did start out with some traditional models of how cyber could contribute to the kinetic fight. I think more and more we're talking about how we can fight back in competition because our adversaries are delivering cyber effects below the level of armed conflict, which has been kind of a thorny issue for us to figure out how to respond, you know, as Lori's talking about in the early days of Cyber Command. How do you respond to something that didn't cause a physical effect? And, and what's really fascinating to me right now is there's a number of thought leaders inside the Air Force, even the broader DOD, who are writing about it. And it's not necessarily the generals, right? It's not the lieutenant generals or major generals. It's the captains and majors and lieutenant colonels. They're the ones who are starting to write things for us to stimulate our thinking, evolve our doctrine, discuss different TTPs. And so we, in uh, winter, the winter 2020, edition of Air and Space Park Journal was an information warfare special edition. And when we had the call for articles, we had a lot of those captains and majors and lieutenant colonels write about this. 
Uh, one of them, Major David Muselowitz, wrote The Spectrum of Cyber Attack, and he outlined an operational framework, how do we modernize our force and get after the future fight and keeping cyber, you know, not as an add-on or afterthought. So people like him and others are the ones that are going to continue to mature our thinking about cyber at all echelons. And I really think we need to, at the senior level, we need to listen to them because they're the ones that are really gaining this experience and thinking, you know, well, what if? What if I do this? What if we tried that? And coming up with some really good ideas. And this conversation that we're having is happening against the backdrop of the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And I, I want to talk briefly about the role that surveillance and intelligence played in the mission that that killed Osama bin Laden. I, I'd like to ask you both, what were some key lessons learned in that operation in terms of improving surveillance and intelligence that have been useful in training for future operations like that one should another operation like that be necessary? You know, many Americans remember exactly where they were on 9-11. I was in the Pentagon. My husband is a retired Marine. He was still on active duty station in Okinawa. And that has been, you know, kind of a seminal moment for other, many people. But just to make sure that it's clear, I was not part of the operation that planned or executed the operation for Osama bin Laden. So I don't have any unique insight into that particular operation. But what I have seen over the past years is, you know, it's back to the data, the growing importance of being able to fuse data, all the data, right? Open source, wherever it comes from, from many sources, our ISR data and non-traditional data. You know, today there's what I call data abundance. Early, and when we were entering Afghanistan, there was data scarcity, and that drove a framework of prioritization, and all sorts of ways to figure out, you know, who gets access to the platforms or capabilities that we're going to provide the data. And so lots of different types of ways to, you know, give people access to the data. Now, there's so much data coming in from, you know, many sources. It's really making the concepts of automation, machine learning, and eventually artificial intelligence even more important. The, the second thing I would say that we have learned over the time and since the mission that killed Osama bin Laden is we've also learned that the time compression between making a decision to do something and then delivering the effects has significantly changed. It's really critical that we make the decision and then be able to act on it so much faster than even you know 20 years ago after 9-11. And we really expect that future battlefield to be even more dynamic than it is today. The only two things that I would add to what Mary just said is you know, especially as you go back to the the mission that killed Osama bin Laden, and I certainly was not involved in that either. I would just suggest that, you know, when Mary talks about the data, it's the data from every domain, but it's also the involvement of the entire interagency, right? So 
you know, whether it's your law enforcement partnerships, your, you know, combat support agencies like DIA and NSA and NGA, it's cross-COCOM collaboration. It's, it's those partnerships where, you know, they're just absolutely essential because, as Mary said, speed matters. The other thing that I, I think that we have all learned and what you see happening now in the Joint Force, certainly across the intelligence community, is that whole idea of you know, national capabilities down to the tactical edge. Because, as General O'Brien says, speed matters. Or the commander needs what the commander needs because a decision needs to be made. And so how do we best enable those tactical level commanders to have the very best information that the country can give or that the partners can give. I think we're all learning that and we will continue to learn that. And that will challenge us, by the way, because, you know, as a communications officer, just enabling that collaboration is a challenge, but it's absolutely essential that we get there. Before I let both of you go, I have to ask you a couple of questions about being the trailblazers that you are in your respective services. And I want to talk with you about women who work in ISR and more broadly women in the military. You're both very high level and you both held various positions where you may have been the only one or leading or at the expert experience level. How were you able to achieve these high level leadership positions? And what would you say to women who are in the pipeline coming behind you about getting to the positions where, where you both are? I would just say first, you know, every job matters. You know, building early on competence, your technical competence, your physical competence, your reputation, being thoughtful. Bev, I tell women all the time, please be thoughtful about the reputation that you want. You can manage your reputation and be thoughtful about that. There's so many pieces and parts to that. But, you know, I think taking the hard jobs, not because, you know, you're a woman, but because that's where you learn the most. Having a learning attitude, showing up to Marine Forces Cyber in 2015 or 16 or whenever that was, boy, that was humbling. Only because as a communications officer, one would think that, that, that cyber and comm are the same thing. They're absolutely not. It humbles you and it forces you to kind of like be a team maker, be a team builder, and to figure out where all the good ideas are. Boy, I could, I could go on and on with you here, Bev, but I'll stop there and let Mary add. There's so much truth in everything that Lori just said. The one thing I would add that probably applies to both of us is we're both so stubborn, right? Like, <laughs> I'm not going away. We're not going away. But more seriously, being a leader, that's not a gender equality. And so the leadership, you know, doing your absolute best to take care of your airmen and lead them. And some of it, maybe, you know, there's luck in timing. When I think about timing, I graduated from the Air Force Academy in 1989. And a large number of jobs were not open to women. And, uh, you know, perhaps there's some luck that I ended up in the career field that I ended up in, which ended up being a good fit for me. Originally, I was going to apply for missiles. ICBMs were not open to women, um, but I thought it would be a good opportunity because they would pay for your master's degree 
And it certainly seemed like there would be a lot of time while you were out in the missile field to study. And I was very surprised to find out that that was one of the career fields that was closed to me. In 1993, women in the Air Force were allowed to fly combat aircraft. And of course, I was already commissioned and had terrible eyes anyway, so that wasn't an option. But that was 65 years after the first American woman pilot flew in uh, 1911, after Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. It wasn't until 2015, just six years ago, that all occupations were open to women. And so some of the timing as doors started to open, you know, even for career fields that weren't directly related to my career field, both intelligence and cyber, uh, the understanding and the need uh, for people understood these things grew. I agree with everything that Lori said. And then there's always a certain amount of luck and timing But the most important thing, again, at this level, is demonstrating that leadership. And are there other key changes that you would like to see in terms of inclusion? You mentioned that now women can hold any job in the military. I would add one important change that uh, not only that I would like to see, that I think we must see. We must see a reduction in sexual assault, sexual harassment, and sexual discrimination. Uh, It has no place in our Air Force, no place in the Department of Defense. It has a negative effect on readiness. We've just spent most of the podcast talking how important uh, readiness is and the ability to conduct ISR and cyber operations. Right now, we need everyone to be able to contribute 100% of their capability. And I'm optimistic knowing that our Secretary of Defense has agreed to major reform in how we handle sexual assaults in the military. I understand that the Deputy Secretary of Defense, uh, Secretary Hicks, is also developing an implementation roadmap in order to move forward. I think this is a really important change and I look forward to supporting it in any way that I can. You know, one of the things I have said in the past, and I will continue to say it, is I think, you know, how we look at talent, how we we measure talent in the services, and maybe it's different across the services, but I think, you know, the conversations that I have with some of our senior leaders, whether they're enlisted senior leaders or officers, is, you know, how you think about talent management matters as you build a team. Everyone can contribute uh, something. Everyone has different strengths and weaknesses and so forth, but I think you know, sometimes across the DOD, there's kind of a culture of accommodation where I think that's not exactly what we're looking for. Nobody wants to be accommodated. What I need is for you to understand the talent that I bring to the mission. And how we manage that talent may change the way our service policies work. It may change assignments. It may change, you know, our ability to retain. I think People always ask me, you know, what, what can we do, you know, to better retain more women officers or make more female sergeants major? Or I said, well, look at how do you manage talent? What is important to you as you are measuring what success looks like? Because I think no one will ever ask that the Marine Corps be anything but the nation's, 
you know, expeditionary force in readiness. On the nation's worst day, you have to be able to call the United States Marine Corps and have them show up ready to be as lethal as necessary. But there's a lot more that goes into lethality than just at the pointy edge of a bayonet. And so I think understanding that, thinking that through, and having a culture of really thinking differently about managing talent in all its forms would be a, a really helpful change. And lastly, advice for the next generation of officers coming behind you. I know, General Reynolds, you're already retired, but General O'Brien, you're still on active duty. Yeah, I am so excited about the generation that's growing up in the Air Force today. I see them connecting in ways that were unimaginable, uh, connecting in numbers, connecting you know, across the country and uh, across the world. And so that power in numbers and the way that I see them sharing, you know, um, past to success, whether it's professional, whether it's personal, whether it's work-life balance, I am so proud of them for supporting each other and, you know, helping each other uh, in, in a culture that might not have been quite as collaborative. I think earlier in my career, there was this perception there was only room for one woman at the table and there would be some competition. And so my advice is to keep doing that. When they group together the, in the Air Force, women are 22% of the force. Uh, when they group together and they speak about what we need, whether it's the Women's Initiative Team, which has grown up to 3,000 members now, and that includes men and women, when they speak about what they need in order to make the Air Force a better place, and that could be maintenance gear that fits them, it could be bladder relief in combat airplanes, there's many, many different things that they're working on and they're working together to make that change. So I don't know that I would advise them. Uh, I, I learn from them and I just hope that they keep doing that as they continue to rise to the senior ranks. They're not just focused on overcoming the barriers themselves. They're focused on tearing down the barriers for everyone. I, I'm so proud of them. I think Mary's got that right. I mean, so when she and I came in, you know, I think our expectations of what we could achieve were probably much lower. And the fact that these young people are coming into the, you know, all of the services really believing that they can go do anything. And they can because, you know, to her earlier point, everything is available to them now. When I came into the Marine Corps, women couldn't fly. Women couldn't go aboard ship. There's so many things that were close to them, and here we are now. There's nothing they can't do, and so I would, you know, this the same thing. Keep keep pushing the boundaries. We are we are not where the Air Force is in terms of you know percentages. We're still, I think, not keeping the incredible talent that we're bringing into the Marine Corps. I think I think that has to change. We need to focus a little bit more on why that is. But my last piece of advice to to all of them would be, you know, to never forget that the foundation of the all-volunteer force that we are all serving under right now is trust. And it's trust with the people who love our service members. It's trust with Americans, you know, the Congress. It's trust with leadership. 
and how we build and maintain trust higher with our peers, uh, with our subordinates is just, that is the coin of the realm. Lieutenant General O'Brien, Lieutenant General Reynolds, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. It's such a pleasure to talk to you both. Thanks so much, Beth. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks to everyone for listening. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.